Well, we are in the book of Acts. We have uh, been going verse by verse, section by section through this book, and we are in chapter 4, starting with verse 23 today. You can be turning there in your Bibles. encourage you to do that. The apostles are preaching a life-changing message here, and it's evidenced because you've got several instances where thousands of people respond to the message properly. And they repent, and they say, what must we do to be saved? And they are gloriously saved, but there's a group of people who are on the scene that are not responding that way. They're not saying, what must we do to be saved? They're saying, what must we do to stay in power? So you've got Sadducees, you've got religious leaders, and they are angered by the message that the apostles are preaching. The Sadducees specifically, because they don't believe in the resurrection, and the disciples, the apostles here, are preaching very clearly that Jesus has come back from the dead, and he's the one that we put our hope in. And so this angers them. The church is kind of in a fairly tender state still. It's just sort of the the, the buddings of it. But the Spirit is moving in incredible power. Great, incredible things are happening. And we talked last week about how God is looking to use ordinary people like us, like the apostles, unlearned guys, but he's looking to, to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And they can only be done through the power of Jesus. And so when the apostles, specifically Peter and John, are, are arrested and they're put in prison and they're, they're told, stop preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. And they respond in a similar way that we would have to respond if some authority over us told us to do the same thing. We would have to say, whether it's right for us to be quiet or not is kind of up to you and between you and God, but we can't help but preach and speak about what we've seen and heard. I'm sorry, but no, (laughs) we're going to keep on doing it. Their lives were marked by godly boldness. A.W. Tozer once said, to be right with God has often meant to be in trouble with men. It's true. We see it here. We have even seen it more recently in our own day and age. Their preaching got them thrown in jail, and yet they respond boldly. We cannot help but preach about what we've seen and heard. Today we find out what happens next. Do they run back and say, boy, we got lucky, guys. Let's make a plan for doing this some other way. Do they decide to shrink back? Do they decide to stop preaching? Do they evaluate to see if the risks are worth it or not? Let's see. Acts four twenty three. Let's read through verse 31 and we'll pray. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do what your hand 
and your plan had predestined to take place. Verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray together. Lord, we need an injection of godly boldness in the church. I need it in my life. My brothers and sisters need it in theirs too. We need to understand that we, we wage battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers that we can't always see, but we know by your word are present. And so give us this boldness like the apostles had here. Not boldness to be ignorant, not boldness to be troublemakers, but boldness to speak truth despite the opposition. Do this work in your people, Lord, and we'll be bold for your sake and your name. It's in that name that we pray. Amen. So I think what we have here is maybe the first missionary report. This is like a good old-fashioned missionary report, right? They come back to the church and they report, they, they tell them everything that had happened. Now, when we think of receiving a missionary report today, we think of welcoming a family back from overseas, something like that. And we want to hear success stories of people being saved, success on the mission field. We pray for health. We pray for safety for our missionaries. We pray that we uh, would even then walk away from these reports lifted up and encouraged and excited about what you know our funds and our prayers have been doing in a missionary's life and in their area of ministry. And I would imagine that there's a temptation for missionaries to come back and to just share the good stuff. You know what I'm saying? To just share the those successes, but to kind of gloss over the difficult times. I don't think... Peter and John did that here. I just, you know, for some reason, I just don't think that they dressed it up for the church to hear that day. Verse 23 tells us that they immediately went back to their friends and they told them everything that had happened to them, that they had been told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, that uh, they had been told to stop talking about the resurrection, to stop spreading the news about Jesus at all anymore. Stop doing it. But they also told them, I'm sure, what they said in response. That they had to. They had no choice but to keep preaching. They didn't know this at the time, I don't think. But this conflict here in Jerusalem, amongst the Jews, this conflict was God's sovereign design to bring, or to begin separating true Christians out of Judaism. The temple where God dwells, isn't the one made of bricks and stone anymore that's, that's set in Jerusalem. The temple, as we saw at the beginning of Acts, with the, the tongues of fire on the believer's head, the temple is now God's people. It's them. It's not a building. It's His people. And this helps us see, this first point in your notes, that God dwells among and within His people, and He gets His people moving. 
And none of us ask for stuff like this in the book of Acts. They didn't ask for this necessarily. And yet this was part of God's sovereign design to get them moving. And this is just the beginning of it. And they don't maybe see it at the moment. But surely, as they're preaching, they're, they're thinking, man, I hope everyone hears this message and repents and is saved. That's their desire, right? That many people would hear this and turn by faith to Jesus Christ. But that just isn't to be. Look at the beginning of verse 24. What did they, what did the church respond with when they heard it? They lifted their voices to God. Now imagine for a moment, it doesn't, isn't too big of a stretch, but imagine if we sent out a mission, a missionary from our church to a place that's hostile to the gospel. We know it. They know it. We collect funds, we send them over, we're praying for them, but they go over to a place that's hostile to the gospel. And then we hear back from them that they've been threatened. Maybe with imprisonment, maybe with loss of life, physical issues. They're told not to preach anymore. Maybe they are, in fact, thrown in jail. What would our response as a church be? Now, I've, I've wrestled with this this week. What would our response as a church be? Because on one level, we care about these people, the missionaries in particular. We care about the people they're going to or else we wouldn't have sent them. But we care about our friends, these missionaries. We don't want harm to come to them. Maybe our natural inclination would be, well, get them out of there. Bring them home. Is it really worth their safety and health to keep them there. Aren't there other easier ways, safer places for God to use them to share the gospel with the lost? Shouldn't we just remove them from that difficult situation? Now I realize that 2023 in the state of the world today is vastly different than AD 30 and being in in, uh, Jerusalem in that time. But I'm not so sure that our perspective about spreading the gospel should be a whole lot different than the early churches. Look how they respond. Verse 24, it says, they lifted their voices together in one accord of the same mind together. They were united in their conviction. And what did it lead them to do? To pray. It led them to pray. Conflict and danger didn't cause them to wring their hands in worry. It moved them to pray. If nothing else, we can learn from that this morning, can't we? Notice how their prayer begins. The ESV translates this. It says, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Sovereign Lord is also, I think in the King James Version, translated Master Sometimes it's just translated Lord in general. But all of those ideas, sovereign, master, Lord, all of those ideas point to the same thing. God is the ruler and master of everything. Sovereign overall. God rules over everything. And these early Christians, they recognize that if God is the master of everything, he's the master of the situation that they're in right then and there. Right? That's what they're... They're recognizing here. They're admitting this. John and Peter's imprisonment didn't happen without 
God's knowledge and foresight. It wasn't a surprise. And they, they say this. They say the Lord is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. It says he's, you're the one who made the heavens and the earth. He's creator. He's got the right as creator to do whatever he pleases. That's what we, we learned this morning with the kids. Because he's the creator of all. Now, this sounds a lot like a prayer from another guy in Scripture in Jeremiah. Flip back real quick to Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah chapter 32. Uh, at the time he is, <clears throat> he's thrown into prison by the king of, of Judah, actually, King Zedekiah. The Babylonians are besieging Jerusalem. But Jeremiah is there saying, they're gonna win. We're gonna fall. You're gonna fall, king. And the king doesn't like that a whole lot. And so he throws him in jail. Jeremiah 32, look at verse 17. He's in prison and he prays this. Ah, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds an awful lot like the church's prayer in Acts chapter 4. I would say that it seems like Jeremiah's prayer and the record of it and the New, New Testament church's study of Old Testament scripture influenced how they prayed. Don't you? These, these prayers are too similar to not think that. Well, look at verse 27 of Jeremiah 32. God answers him. Jeremiah 32 verse 27. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Now, he wasn't literally asking Jeremiah for Jeremiah to ask back, right? God knew the answer, and I think Jeremiah did too, and that's why he confessed that of the Lord just a few verses earlier. He says, I am the Lord of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me. So God affirms what Jeremiah is praying about and he says, yeah, nothing is too difficult for me. Nothing is too difficult for God. And I think the Christian's prayer in Acts includes Old Testament scriptures like this as a way of reminding themselves of this truth and teaching it to those new in the faith. Because remember, there's thousands of people that knew a lot about scripture but had just come to genuine faith in Christ. And so now they're hearing the church praying scriptures back to the Lord. What a teaching moment this is for God's people. What a teaching moment this is for us, isn't it? They go on in their prayer. They quote Psalm chapter 2 back in Acts chapter 4. And they clearly attribute what's being said through David to the Holy Spirit. This is being said by the Holy Spirit himself. This is chapter 2 of Psalms, verse 1 and 2. You can look at Acts chapter 4, verse 25, and see the same thing. It says, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. What the early church is doing here is super important. I don't want us to miss it. 
What they're doing here is they're practicing a Christ-centered worldview. They're reading these Old Testament passages, they're recalling them to mind, and they're seeing the fulfillment of Jesus in them. That's really important for us even still now. They're not trying to force the current events of the day into Scripture. They're interpreting what's going on in the lens of truth. They understand Psalm 2 as a foretelling of the gospel and the events that they were witnessing personally in that day. And look at verse 27. I think they start making the connections pretty clearly here. They say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. See, they're connecting that back to Psalm 2, the anointed phrasing. They're talking about Jesus. And now they mention both Herod, Jewish, Pontius Pilate, Gentile, along with all the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So David was God's anointed king in the Old Testament, but David had his flaws and his rule was flawed, wasn't it? Jesus comes from the house and line of David, but you know what? His rule is not flawed. His kingship is not flawed. His rule will have no end. And so Jesus, they recognize this incredible truth in their Christ-centered worldview. They recognize that Jesus is God's anointed who is lifted up higher than all. It's Jesus. It's him. The Gentiles... Many of the Jews, the rulers, and all the kings all clearly set themselves against Jesus Christ. And he would suffer at their hands. But he has risen victorious as the true ruler over everything. And this is the message that the apostles were preaching that was converting many but angering many. The enemies of the anointed one plot against the Lord in vain. And the prayer of the church in Acts 4 shows their unshaken confidence. They heard this missionary report and they didn't shrink back in fear. They said, and we'll see in just a few verses, they said, Lord, give us strength to persevere, to keep pushing forward. Boy, and I fear that this is a vastly different kind of prayer than our churches pray today. It ought not to be. Look at verse 27. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See, they knew who was in control. People tried, they plotted, but who had the reins? God did. He still does. We've already seen that these Christians apply the scriptures this way in the book of Acts chapter 1. Remember, uh, Peter gets up and he starts explaining what was going on with the tongues of fire and the speaking in other languages. And he talks about Judas and then he brings in uh, a passage there from the Old Testament talking about how scripture had to be fulfilled in this. That's chapter 1 verse 16. So this isn't a foreign idea. They've been practicing this through God's good leadership in Peter and John this whole time so far. And they're, they're seeing how the fulfillment of Psalm 2 is playing out in their day and age in Jesus. And they're making that connection. The church realized that they were witnessing this. And they, they drew great confidence and boldness from the sovereignty of God. Their prayer shows it. Look at 
how they end their prayer in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Guys, they could see that even though these rulers were gathered against them, just like they were gathered against Jesus, this was all by the hand of a sovereign God. Do we see that? In the things that we would consider struggling or sufferings or difficulties in our life, do we take a step back enough to see, and this could this be the hand of God? Could this be God's sovereign design here? They could see now that even though Jesus endured, endured persecution and death, that those things were followed by a glorious resurrection and glorification, and the same would be true of them. And that's the message that they were preaching. See, part of the early church's theology was that persecution had a purpose. Do we see it the same way? Or do we whine? And do we complain? And do we slink around? They, They understood this. In God's sovereign design and plan... The persecution had a purpose. And in the same way, they could be assured that any persecution that they encountered would also have purpose in God's sovereign plan of redemption. See, this is a truth that we need to understand, that God doesn't waste pain. He doesn't waste persecution. He uses it for the advancement of the gospel and for his glory. But sometimes, when our mindset is not right, we don't see God's hand in anything. And that's when the downward spiral begins. Brothers and sisters, if you're there, if you're along that path where you feel like God has left you, like God is no longer involved in your life at all, take some comfort from these verses this morning. Hopefully we see that through this text that God doesn't waste our pain. He uses it for his purpose. I think these Christians expected to face persecution. When they preach the gospel, just like Jesus did. Look at what they say. I mean, they put themselves in the same boat as Jesus. They identify with him and they say, grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Do you remember how they described Jesus just a few verses earlier? God's holy servant anointed Jesus. They're, they're identifying with Christ in being a servant of God. Jesus is God's holy and anointed servant in verse 27, and they are God's servants in verse 29. And I think that this realization of truth prompts them to cry out for power to witness all the more, even though kings and rulers may stand against them just as they had stood against Jesus. A Bible commentator, John Phillips, said this. I think it's good for us to hear. God turned that horrible scaffold upon which men murdered their maker into a stage upon which he demonstrated the wonder of his saving grace. God converted those gallows into a means of grace so that the cross that meant a horrible death to Jesus now means life everlasting to us. See, God doesn't waste the pain Notice something else from these verses. The request that they make to God 
is focused on the cause and glory of God himself, not themselves. In fact, if you look at what they ask God to do, they actually ask, I thought this was really funny, they actually ask God for things that will likely lead to more persecution, not less. Grant your servants boldness to continue preaching. What did they expect was going to happen when the authorities told them to stop already? They expected it to happen more. And this is what they prayed for. Incredibly, they didn't pray that God would remove the persecution. They didn't pray that God would make it easier. They prayed that God would give them continued boldness to preach no matter what came their way. They didn't even pray for comfort in affliction, though I don't think it would have been wrong. But notice they prayed that God's will would be done above everything else. That's what they prayed for. Is that what we pray for? That God's will would be done above, above everything else. I mean, I, I look at the this prayer of the church. D- does it move you this morning? It moves me for them to pray like this because... We have freedoms that we ought to fight for, that we ought to consider and think through. But we've got more freedoms than these early Christians had by a long shot. And oftentimes, we mope around halfway defeated, don't we? They had more reason to, and they didn't get close to that. But they knew that God's will would be done, and that's what they prayed for. They prayed for boldness. Look at verse 30. Verse 30 indicates that they expected God's hand to move in incredible ways as they continued preaching this way. They expected signs and wonders and healings through the name of Jesus. While they're going out, while they're preaching, while the Spirit of God is moving, incredible things were going to continue happening. Healings, signs, wonders, the power to do these things isn't going to come from themselves. It's going to come from Jesus. There's power in His name. His name represents his person, his power and authority. And so they call on the name of Jesus and they expect incredible things to happen. This kind of supernatural evidence was necessary for, for the Jews that are in that day and age to confirm to them the truth of the gospel, that Jesus really is the Messiah. They hadn't seen this sort of thing happen before. And they knew all about the Old Testament scriptures. But now Jesus has come and these signs and wonders and healings proved that he was who he said he was. Now think about this with me. Look at verse 28. They're praying and they, they ask God. They say, do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And they mention Jesus. Guys, the reality is in verse 28, the hand of God was extended to crucify his son. That was the plan and purpose of God. But look at verse 30. His people, the church, expect that his hand now will be extended to heal, to mend, to perform signs and wonders. But it's all the same God. Because it's all part of his, of his sovereign plan. People's physical bodies might be healed, but it was more than just their bodies that these apostles and the gospel is concerned about. It's about their souls, their spirits. Like the lame man, 
Remember that we talked about in chapter 3? His whole life was changed. 40 plus years, never walked. In a moment, stands up, runs, leaping, is praising God. His whole life has changed. This is a picture of salvation in every believer, isn't it? Our life is totally changed. Inwardly, we're like the dead, the, the, the lame man, have no ability to move on our own. No ability to please God on our own. And then when salvation comes by the grace of God, through faith in God, our, our, our spirits are set free, running and leaping and able to please the Lord. Totally affected by the message of the gospel. And I just want to point out in this that the gospel isn't primarily a message about physical healing, though people's bodies were healed. The, the gospel, this primary message, is about reconciliation with the holy God. And that's why you see when Jesus performs so many miracles, he talks about their sin being forgiven. Because it's about more than just their physical body. That's still going to the grave one day. There's more to it. There's reconciliation with the holy God. I look at this prayer of the early church here, and it reminded me a lot of the first three chapters in the book of Romans. The first three chapters in the book of Romans point out our sin, don't they? It's wrapped up in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. You know this verse probably. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What, what are they saying here? They're saying the same thing. Everybody has sinned. Jews and their leader assembled against Jesus. Gentiles and their leader assembled against Jesus. They're all guilty of this. They're all guilty of putting Christ on the cross. And you know what? In, in a sense, we are too. Our sin put him there. The Jews and Herod and the Gentiles and Pontius Pilate just happened to be the immediate instruments, if you will, that God used to bring about his predestined purpose. And the church's bold response here, I hope is encouraging to you. It's remarkable in my mind. And as we as we finish up, let me just summarize three quick things about this prayer. Kids, these are the things that Pastor Jason asked you to be listening for. Adults, be listening for these too. There's three things I just want to point out from this prayer. Number one is that this, their prayer is rooted in God's character. Right? His sovereignty, his wisdom, his power, his creatorship, his omniscience. Their prayer is rooted in God's character. They recognize that all of these things were under the control of their master, their sovereign Lord. Secondly, their prayer is rooted in scripture. Remember, they went back to Jeremiah's prayer, I believe, to Psalm chapter 2. They went back to the scriptures in understanding and in their prayer. They've studied it. Their church leaders knew it. And now they interpreted their lives in light of it. We ought to do the same, don't you think? Number three, and lastly, their prayer is focused, is focused on the mission, not their comfort. This is the one that stings a little bit, isn't it? Yeah, prayer ought to be rooted in the character of God. We get that. It ought to be rooted in scripture. Good. That's a great thing. Well, now we see that their prayer is actually focused on something that's not about them. And that's hard. Because too often we like to make things about us, don't we? My comfort, my abilities, 
Paul, who caused both a great deal of suffering in the church, but also experienced a great deal of suffering, he told Timothy this in First Timothy or Second Timothy three twelve. He says, "Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted." Brothers and sisters, I don't know what the future holds for us in our country. I hope good things for the sake of our children and their children. I don't know what it's going to look like in 10, 5, 10, 15 years. But I do know one thing, because it's written here in God's word that never changes, is that we shouldn't shrink away when times get tough. We shouldn't expect that we won't ever suffer persecution or our walk will never be difficult. Because we're told Every person who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, we don't, we don't ask for that necessarily. We don't long for that. But the church aligns itself with the sufferings of Christ. With Christ and his sufferings. And so we pray for boldness more than we pray for comfort. We pray for perseverance over avoiding uncomfortable circumstances. We pray for our churches and our missionaries to be faithful in preaching no matter the cost. I hope and pray that we will recognize, like these early Christians and so many others down through the years, that Jesus is worth more than anything, including our comfort and maybe maybe even our lives. Will our prayers reflect this? Will we pray more about our comfort being maintained, or will we ask that God's greater glory be displayed? We have a choice in this, don't you think? How will our prayers be affected? When our prayers are focused in this way, when they're focused on the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel, not on our own comfort, I, I think incredible things happen. And that, that's what rounds us out in verse 31 today. Incredible things happen. When they, when they, and when they had prayed... The place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Did you hear that? The place was physically shaken. When the church submits itself to the sovereign hand and plan of God, incredible things happen. Not only was it shaken, but they were filled with the Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit, and what did that filling enable them to do? To go and to continue preaching the Word of God with boldness. They could have been shaken by the news of Peter and John's imprisonment, but the sovereign God shook the church instead. And it resulted in the people of God continually, that's the the, the Greek for that word, continually speaking His name and his message of the gospel with all boldness. So here's some questions to evaluate as we close. For the Christian, does the presence of God shake you? Courtney read this morning in Hebrews chapter 10, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's only fearful if you don't have a relationship with him. Does the presence of God shake you? Does the Spirit of God fill you? Is the Word of God in you? 
You see, you, you're not going to be able to pray God's word back to him if you don't know God's word, right? And so does the word of God fill us? Does the spirit of God fill us? Does the presence of God shake us? Let's pray that the Lord does a work in our church and the churches today for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of his name. If you're here today and you've not been saved, if you've not put your faith in Christ, we learn here that the preordained plan of God was to send his only son to die for the sin of every person who believes. And at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. All have sinned and fallen short of his glory. And yet God has made a way by his son through the cross for every person who believes to have faith in him and to be saved. Our hope and prayer is that you might see and understand this truth today and that you would believe and that you would find life in the name of Jesus. I'm going to pray and then we're going to have a closing song and then we get to go over to the, the sanctuary, to the chapel, and we get to see that idea demonstrated for us in real life, real life people in baptism. And so we're excited to experience that and to celebrate that joy together. But as we pray and as we sing our final song here, I would ask for you to consider the things that have been said this morning. Church, do we pray like this? If we don't, can we start? Let's do it now. Lord God, uh, it's pretty clear that this early church understood that there was more to this life than just this life. <laughs> there was more than just the air that we breathe and our time on this planet. There's an eternity at stake here. And they saw it and they saw their life as important and significant, but also just a small dot on the map of eternity that you care deeply about, Lord, but they recognize it wasn't about them. It was about the glory of Jesus Christ, the anointed one. And so sovereign Lord, maker of heaven and earth and everything in it, would you give us boldness in our places of work, in our families, on the street, here in this church, across the oceans, wherever you call us, Lord, would you give us boldness to continue preaching the truth? Because certainly, if there was ever a time when our culture needed truth, it's today. Help us to be shaken by your presence, to be filled with the Spirit, and to have your word in us, so that Jesus might be clearly seen and worshipped as a result of our lives. Lord, I pray for the unsaved that have not put their faith in you. I pray that this this message, that this example in the act of baptism would serve as an encouragement, as a challenge to them to really seek out what it would look like to put their faith in Christ. And so, Lord, have your way in us, the audience today. In your name we pray, amen.